You know, Matthew 21, Jesus was riding in on, tr on the triumphal entry, and um, they didn't like that there were a bunch of children yelling out Hosanna to Jesus. And in Matthew 21, Jesus turned to them and quoted Psalm 8, verse 2, that speaks of children. Out of the mouths of children, God has prepared praise, which is interesting because it was like the Pharisees and scribes thought, well, they don't even understand what they're saying. And Jesus was saying, well, that's okay, right? That's okay. There's a, there's a lot like big Hebrew words, hallelujah, which I, I'm assuming most of them couldn't uh, untangle that little Hebrew word. Do you know what that Hebrew word means, by the way? They said it many times, hallelujah. Very, it's a compound word. Hallel is the Hebrew word for praise. Lu is the particle that speaks to a plural pronoun, a second person plural pronoun. And Yah is the particle that represents Jesus's or God's proper name, Yahweh. So hallelujah is the Hebrew translation, if we were translated, is to tell other people, y'all need to be praising God for what we just said. That's what the word hallelujah means. And, and while most of our kids haven't studied Hebrew up here, right, they're saying things that God is saying, that's good, that's good, that's exactly right. That's exactly what they're saying, and it's true. And even Jesus affirms that truth out of the mouths of children comes words sometimes they don't even quite know what they're saying. It may have been that they didn't know what that word Hosanna meant. Many of the kids started to say it, and the scribe says, you got to stop them, Jesus. They're saying they don't even know what they're saying. And Jesus says, even through the mouths of people, if their brains can't even process what they're saying, if they're speaking truth, everyone's listening, including the scribes and the Pharisees. They ought to recognize the truthfulness of what they're saying. And the truthfulness of what they're saying wasn't even understood among the adults who were saying it. And that's the interesting thing about them yelling out, Hosanna. The week before Jesus was crucified, they were saying, Hosanna, 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 which translated means, save us now. We want you to save us now. And while we talk about being saved in an average church setting like this, people think about what we really mean today, which is being saved from the penalty of the sins that we have committed. We've done wrong, moral things that are not acceptable to God. We don't want to be punished for those. God, save us from the penalty of our sins. And even on the Temple Mount, as Jesus was riding in on that day, the adults were saying that probably didn't even quite know what Jesus was coming to do. And yet, they were saying something right. They didn't know it was right. Now, does God want our brain to catch up with our mouths? Absolutely. And our prayer has been, in many prayer meetings I've been in leading up to this service, that even the things our kids have memorized and sung and, and recited, we pray that they will get to the place in their lives where they understand the profound truths that they're singing and that it might lead them to the place of truly repenting of their sins and putting their trust in Christ as the Savior of their sinful lives, which the Bible says we're all born in that state. We pray for that, that our minds would catch up with our mouths and in our culture. Think about it. How often do we talk about the coming of Jesus Christ the Lord, and people don't even understand what that means? Our job as a church, and every job that, that a preacher holds, is really about trying to clarify these things. We want our minds to catch up with the things that we say. And we talk about Christmas where the coming of Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. What we want is to understand that. And that takes teaching. That takes the Bible being explained. That's why every single week and every night of the week at this campus, people are standing up on platforms all over the 100,000 square feet of building complex that we have here talking about what this means. And it's so important that our, that our minds catch up with what it all means. And when we say that Jesus Christ has come to save us, we need to remember that all the things that you've heard recited, 
that have a natural meaning, like Jesus is king, that the government will rest on his shoulders, that he's bringing in a new world, a new order, where all things are going to be made right, those are all, in their natural meaning, absolutely 100% true. It's just they haven't happened yet. Because when it comes to Jesus' first coming, he was all about putting first things first. And the first thing that needed to be done was not him setting up a kingdom where he could rule in perfection and make everything on the planet at least governmentally right. He wanted to make our hearts right. The most difficult thing needed to be done first. And that is the Pharisees and the scribes, along with the children and everyone else who were waving palm branches on Palm Sunday, they needed to realize that what Jesus came to do is to deal with the problem of sin. Sin, that's the problem. The problem is that you and I are not what we're supposed to be which is a great theological definition, by the way, of what sin is. Sin is that when we do things that we're not supposed to do, that we're living lives, thinking thoughts, saying things, doing things that we should not do. That is not what God designed us to do. That's how, how, how God would have us live. And he says, when you do that, God has put something in every single person. I don't care where they live. I don't care if they've never been to church, Sunday school, Sabbath school. They haven't been anywhere to sit under the teaching of God's law, either Old or New Testament. They understand that they have done wrong with something God has implanted in their lives called a conscience. And he's written on their conscience a set of requirements of what we should be. And when we violate those, we feel bad. And the Bible says if we work hard enough, we can suppress the truth of that conscience until we hardly feel it. He talks about our conscience being calloused or even burned and seared like there's scar tissue over the top of it. And we can get to the place where we start to think we're okay. We're okay. We felt bad when we were young. We felt bad maybe when we were early teenagers. But by the time we got to college, we were pretty good at callousing our conscience where we didn't feel bad about it anymore. Well, the teaching of God's word and the truth about Jesus coming to deal with sin first before he dealt with the world and the government and everything that's going to happen in this world in what's called a new earth where righteousness dwells, he said the first thing that needs to happen is your heart needs to be made righteous. You need to have your sins forgiven. You need to have that sense of who you are as a person falling short of God's standard, and you need to call out to him to fix the problem, which isn't to make you 100% obedient because that's never going to happen this side of heaven. But the reality is that we've got to come to the place where we admit our wrong before God, and we say we don't live up to the standard that you've set, and we're pleading with you to forgive us. And the only way for God to forgive us is not to just say, well, I'll just pretend it didn't happen. It has to be dealt with. God has to be a righteous judge, not just a forgiving Savior. He has to be a righteous judge. He can't just look at sin no more than any judge here in Orange County should look at some crime and say, well, let's just pretend it didn't happen. God can't say that about you, nor should any righteous judge say that about any criminal. There's got to be a penalty that's paid. Problem is, our penalty is so big because we've sinned against a holy and perfect transcendent God that he says the only way to deal with this is for my own son to absorb it. I have to. In the triunity of this great complex God, he sends the second person of the Godhead to go and absorb the problem, absorb the penalty. And he says, I will pay your penalty on my son so that you don't have to pay it. You'll never have to hear from me, depart from me into outer darkness where there's weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. And you can pretend that's not a reality, but Jesus taught about that more than any other person in the Bible, any other prophet in the Bible, any other writer of the text of Scripture. Jesus kept saying there's a penalty to be paid for our sin, but I've come so that it can be forgiven. I will live the life that you should have lived so that God can take my righteous deeds and pretend that they're yours 
And he can now take your sin and he can impute it and account it to my cross so that I will bear the penalty for you. I use the word pretend. The word in Greek is logizomai. It's the word that he has to take the reality of Jesus' life and he has to impute it, account it to me. And that my sins now get accounted to him. This is called the great exchange. My life is placed on his cross and his righteous life is placed on me. And God says, if you trust in me, I will then at that moment make you a member of my family. Or better yet, let's just put it in terms of what we've sung about today, a a citizen of my kingdom. You become a citizen of my kingdom and I will forgive your sins and you'll have no reference to your sins in eternity. You will be 100% forgiven. But you are not intended to fly around on cotton ball clouds as some kind of disembodied spirit. I've created you to live in a body, to eat food, to breathe air, to live on this earth. And what he's going to do is take this earth and he's going to replace it with a new earth. The new heavens and the new earth. A new outside of this realm and a new realm in which we're supposed to live. And I will send my son. He will be the child that's given, the son that is given. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And he'll be called wonderful counselor. He'll always lead us in the right direction. Mighty God. He'll have all power resident in one body. This incarnate second person of the Godhead. Right? Everlasting Father. You'll always look to him as the leader, as the shepherd, as the one in charge. It's not talking about the Father in the Godhead, but he will be the Father of mankind. Right? Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. He's going to solve every problem. We will not have supreme courts. We won't have a balance of power. We won't have houses in, in Congress. We will simply have one person leading everything, and the Bible says that that will fix the problem of this planet. When Jesus comes back and the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of our Lord, the Father, and of his Christ, his Son, and he'll reign forever and ever. The problem is we look around and we're struggling with all kinds of illnesses and sicknesses and, and people die, and, and the Bible says what we're going to do is fix all of that. We're going to take you and your sinful state, just like we had before the fall, a life that was supposed to endure forever without sickness or illness, and we're going to recreate that in something called the resurrection. And if you trust in me, you'll not only be a citizen of the kingdom, you'll also be someone who gets resurrected into perfection and you will live on a new heaven, a new earth rather. He'll dwell in a new heaven. Christ will live on the capital of this new earth and you will live in a place where there's no crying, no mourning, no tears, no death, no disease. This is the new reality that we all long for. And in every situation we find on this earth, even people that reject biblical Christianity, they have this internal longing, just like a conscience that tells us that we're sinners, a longing for eternity. Solomon put it this way in Ecclesiastes, he set eternity in every person's heart. I mean, it doesn't matter how long we live. We really think if we could just live in a healthy state, we want our loved ones to live on forever. And the Bible says that's coming. Just in the order of Christ's resurrection, I will give you a body that is impervious to death. That's the great promise of the king coming to earth the first time, but just in the first coming to deal with sin. Then he's going to leave us here. As the apostles said, when are you going to fix this? When are you going to fix the earth? In Acts chapter 1, he said, I'm going to go away. But you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. You collect people to follow me who'll put their trust in me. They'll become card-carrying citizens of the kingdom. And then when I come back, I set up my kingdom. I'll resurrect and change their bodies. And they'll live in an eternal state. It'll be just exactly how it ought to be. No more goodbyes, no more funerals, no more hospitals, no more illnesses. That's the reality. It's not pie in the sky. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. It's the reality that we all internally long for. And the Bible says, I'll offer it to you. But first, you've got to deal with the hardest part. 
And that is, can you admit that you're a sinner? Can you realize that your sin problem is so big that God had to solve the problem himself by sending his son to live in our place and die in our place? And if you'd embrace that and trust in Jesus Christ and say, I will be a follower of Christ, I will trust in his finished work, the Bible says, I'll deal with the future. And at a day and an hour you don't know, I'm going to dispatch my son to fix this planet. And all the kingdoms of the world will be set aside, as Daniel said. This is 500 years before Christ. He says, I'm going to take all the kingdoms of the world and sweep them away. He says, this big rock, this is how it's described in the early part of Daniel, is going to come and smash all the kingdoms of the world, and he's going to set up his kingdom, and it's going to fill the earth. And Christ is going to be the king, the son of man to whom all authority is given. Daniel chapter 7, all of it will be given to him. He will rule and reign, and it will be exactly as it ought to be. And the nations, it says, won't learn, learn war anymore. They're going to take their weapons and implements of war. They're going to put them into agricultural tools. And people are just going to enjoy life. Everyone's going to sit under their own vine. They're going to enjoy their own homes. They're going to enjoy love and relationships and all that we should have without any reference to what the tempter accomplished back there in Genesis 3. That's the thing that you know at the depth of who you are. It resonates with that, that part of your life that is reflecting the image of God that God has created in you. What we need to do is to admit the problem and embrace the solution, and then say, God, we're awaiting that day. And in the meantime, we're supposed to be witnesses, and we will even have our kids sing songs so that they don't fully understand, to be able to ordain the praise to God that all should be focused on the coming of Christ, the only life, by the way, that has become great, not because of what he accomplished in his life, although he accomplished much. It was is infinitely great, but because of everything that was anticipated. Picture the bow tie, right? There's a lot in the Old Testament. It just comes and it finds its knot right here in the middle in Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And then everything in the New Testament flows from that. Everything in history in the biblical record was moving toward the coming of Jesus Christ. And now that he's come, we're awaiting the fulfillment of all of his promises. All the fulfillments of the Old Testament regarding his coming, it's all there. And we see it in a book that's unlike any other. No other religion is based on a thousand years of prophetic promises regarding one person. And then we have that person, and now we're saying, okay, he's dealing with problem number one, our sin problem. And now we're awaiting the fixing of everything else. We trust in him, we proclaim his message, and 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet, we still have kids singing every December about the coming of Jesus Christ. The question is, where do you stand with all that, really? Where do you stand with Christ? so good to use that phrase, Christ. When Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That first line really harkens back to all the Old Testament promises. And it's good for us to remember that. Christ is the continuation of God's prophetic and, and, and redemptive plan. And now that he's here, our job, trust him. And once we trust him, we become his witnesses. And we go into our workplaces, our neighborhoods, in our world, and we say Christ is the answer, not just to fix our temporal problems, but to fix the eternal problem of what every human heart longs for. And I trust that you'd put your confidence in him this Christmas, and you'd respond to really the simple message of what you've just heard this morning. It all comes down to one person dealing with their one God, their creator, and the Savior that has come to give you life, and really, it's time to respond. And all of us fight it. We really do. There's not a testimony in the room of someone who's come to submission to Jesus Christ that hadn't fought it at some level before they got there. And I don't know what it is for you or where you're at in that battle, but if you're not a Christian yet, and that means you've submitted your life to the one person that solved your problem, that your hope is in him to settle your problem for eternity, then it's time to stop fighting. 
Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle, he was kicking against all the effort of the Spirit of God trying to move him into the place that all of us have had to get to if we've ever put our trust in Christ. And Jesus said, you're kicking against the goads. I'm goading you toward the truth, and you keep fighting me on this. But of course, God gets his way, and I trust he'd have his way with you today, that if you're fighting the promptings of God's spirit of conviction and move toward trusting in Christ, today might be the day for you. No cards to fill out, no aisles to walk, no hands to raise, there's no gimmicks, there's no arm twisting here. It's just you reckoning with the reality of what God might be doing in your conscience, in your life, that his spirit might be doing on your spirit, and to say, I'm done, done fighting, I'm ready to surrender to this. Important that we count the cost. Luke 14, count the cost. Right? Your life is at stake, right? not just eternity. Right? You can't time this just to the end of your life. It, it's right now, getting ready for eternity now and saying, I know it's going to affect the rest of my life. I had all kinds of plans for my life, and it wasn't standing on stage on a Sunday morning talking about Jesus. That's for sure. That was not my life plan. And yet, coming to Christ, I realized, you know, if God is God, and I'm going to say you're my Savior, and I trust you, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And, and God said, okay. And, and here I am. And some of you that are Christians could get up on the platform and tell your story about how God took you to places you never thought you'd go to represent him. You passed on the promotion. You passed on this job. You did whatever to say, I'll try to be most effective in being some kind of salt and light in the corner of the world in which God has put me. And, and, and you know what it's like, whether he's turned you into a missionary or a pastor or, or whether you're just light and salt in whatever corner of the world you're in. We know what it's like to follow Christ. And I would say to you, if you're fighting this, just know, yeah, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you some friends. It's going to cost you opportunities. It's going to cost you forms of entertainment. It's going to cost you lots of things. But I'll tell you what, it's worth it. Because in the end, you've got one of two options. When Christ comes back to set up his kingdom, here's how it's put in Matthew 25. He's going to gather the nations together and start separating people the way a shepherd would separate sheep from the goats. And you want to be on the right side of that. Because to the sheep, he says, to those in his right, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's good news. I don't even want to quote the other side. Because it's not, it's not a happy text. But I'll tell you, on Christmas here, with lights behind me, thinking about our kids singing about Christ, you want to be on the right side of history. A lot of people think they're telling you how to get on the right side of history. This is the only way to get on the right side of history. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you say, yeah, but what about, what about, what about? Well, if there's serious doubts, then let's talk, seriously. Lots of people here love to talk to you about the whatabouts. But when it comes down to it, I find a lot of our excuses really aren't about an intellectual barrier to faith in Christ. It's usually about saying, I just want to maintain control. Right? I'd like all the benefits of God's world. I want all the, the blessings that God can give. I just don't want to give him the, the driver's seat of my life. And I know that's the tension for all of us. But at some point, you're going to have to figure this out. Figure out before it's too late. Because when it's too late, it's too late. And you don't want to hear about what Jesus says to those on his left. But it's all about two, two people. A bifurcation of the whole humanity. Only only two options, two roads. There's a big road, and you've got a lot, of, a lot of company on that road, and you've got a narrow road. And Jesus said, you better pick the right road. And today might be a day of decision for you. So I would plead with you, if Christ is working on your heart, to make that decision. We don't need any fanfare. We'll have fanfare down the road. It's called a baptismal service. You'll be up here telling people about your commitment to Christ. But right now, it's about you doing business with God. That's why we put this on. That's why we exist as a church. That's why we are Christians, to represent Christ in this world. So we want to do it as clearly as we can this Christmas. It's a joyful thing. It's a joyful thing when we're recipients and beneficiaries of his good work. But it is hard for us to step across the street, to go from one path to the other path. So I'd consider 
if I could for you, where you ought to be, but I can't. You got to do this yourself. So maybe today's the day for you. If it is, I'd like to at least give you an opportunity to talk to God. No prayers to recite, no words to recite, just, but you just bowing your head and saying to God, I'm done. I'm done fighting you. I'm ready to follow you. I see my sin. I want you to have mercy on me. I'm ready to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Bow your heads with me. If you're there, just in your own way, just articulate that to God. God, I'm ready. And I guarantee you things will change from this point forward. Doesn't mean your life's going to be better. Doesn't mean it's going to be happier. Matter of fact, your life's going to get harder. But the good news is you'll become a citizen of the kingdom. God, if there's people in this room right now grappling with that, I pray today would be the day for them. I mean, there's no one that really would be at that point of real repentance and faith if there wasn't a lot that has gone into it up to this point. There's a lot of dating that goes on with Christ before we ever see people step across into real repentant commitment of what it means to be a child of God. But maybe today's the day for some. And if it is, God, make that so clear that it's a day of decision, it's a day of of, of repentance, it's a day of turning and trusting It's a day that they'll never forget, the day they become genuine Christians, children of God, citizens of the kingdom, those that have an absolute assured hope that when Christ comes back, they're on the right side of history. We're thankful for every promise of the Old Testament, that they're all based in absolute 100% truth. Your batting record's perfect. We know that one day history's going to end exactly the way that you said it would because every other promise you've made has come true. So God, we trust you right now. Those of us that are Christians with 100% certainty, we say we are sure that you are a faithful God and worthy of our trust. And for those not not there yet, God, may, may it be soon for them. If not today, just tonight, tomorrow, soon, before it's too late. God, thank you so much for our kids. We love them so much. May we be able to go out and encourage them now with all that we've got on the patio. Thanks for their hard work. Give them a great day of even realizing how in some small way that they would realize that they've been used by you to proclaim an eternally important message in Jesus' name.